What day did Jesus rise from the dead? I think we can agree on that one, can't we? Sunday. So how does that make three days? Well, Jesus said himself, uh, for as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so I, the Son of Man, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Hmm. So, a little bit controversial if you like, but Friday to Sunday is not three days, although some people explain it as three part days. But what did Jesus say? Three days and three nights. They sort of forget the bit about the night, the three nights. Today's about celebration. It's not a Bible study. So I'm not going to go into a great deal. I'll just, just share one thought on this. Now, another question. What day is the Jewish Sabbath? Saturday, we all know that. Every Saturday. But sometimes we forget that there are also annual Sabbaths when they give an additional day of rest. And one of those is Passover or the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which, of course, is what Jesus celebrated with his disciples before his crucifixion. So these annual Sabbaths, or public holidays, if you like, I know we move ours to Mondays, but they don't. They have a public holiday on the day, it's a public holiday. They can fall on any day of the week. So obviously, six out of seven chance that it isn't going to be on the normal Sabbath day. So it's quite likely that as we read the accounts in the Gospels about Jesus' death and resurrection, we're actually reading about events around both the Passover Sabbath and the weekly Sabbath which may well have been, and probably were, six out of seven chance on different days. Now, I'm going to leave it there, just to get us thinking. I'm not going to go into any more. There's a whole chapter in the book that I've got that talks about exactly how it could or couldn't be. We don't know, um, but that might explain some of it. Happy to talk afterwards if you want. So, back to the questions. How do you imagine the area around the tomb when the women went to anoint Jesus' body? How do you imagine that area around the tomb? Any salt? Garden. Peaceful. Quiet. Bit like a, a beautifully kept cemetery. I'll read Matthew's account in a moment. I don't think I could find anything about bunny rabbits, Easter eggs or lambs in the Bible. I hope you agree with that. I can't see them mentioned anywhere in relation to this story, except, of course... Jesus being the Lamb of God, but that's a different context. Now, depending on which Bible you use, the word Easter is only used once in the New Testament. Any idea where? You probably don't use this version of the Bible. Most of us don't these days. It's King James. And it's in Acts 12. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand her hands to vex certain of the church and he killed James the brother of John with the sword and because he saw it pleased the Jews he proceeded further to take Peter also then were the days of unleavened bread and when he had apprehended him he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions that's squads apparently of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people now, every translation since 1611 
drop the word Easter. Even the New King James Version doesn't use the word Easter. It's always replaced by the word Passover. Now, the, the last thing to think about before I go sort of more traditional for an Easter Sunday, Easter is mentioned in the Old Testament, but as a pagan festival. It originates in the worship of the goddess Estra, or Astarte, which is the same as the Syrian Ashtoreth. You might recall that name, mentioned in Kings, but mentioned as being the vile god of the Sidonians. The king, that's Josiah at that time, also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the, king, uh, the hill of corruption, the one Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians. So, it's confused, isn't it? She was worshipped as a fertility goddess and they celebrated her at the spring equinox, so that's the day when day and night are exactly the same length. That's where the symbols of rabbits and eggs come from. We know that rabbits breathe prolifically and it was thought that the more they decorated the eggs, the more fancy they were, then the more fertility, the greater their offering. And it appears that Christians took over that festival around about 500 AD. But don't worry. Our God can redeem even these festivals. I think that's probably enough history in it for today because we want to celebrate new life in Jesus. And actually some Christians prefer to call today Resurrection Sunday. And if you remember that very first song that Joan introduced talked about Resurrection Day. It didn't talk about Easter Day, it talked about Resurrection Day. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Whatever we call it, we celebrate because Jesus has risen. Sin has been beaten. Death has lost its sting. We have new and eternal life. We celebrate a living God who brings life, who walks through life with us. And whether our celebrations include eggs or bunnies or chicks or lambs or all three or, no, or four or, or none at all, we celebrate a risen Lord who's beaten the enemy once and for all. That's our Easter. So let's read Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. So, wasn't that tranquil, was it? That nice sort of peaceful garden we perhaps thought about at the beginning there. At least not at that time. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. They were afraid but filled with joy. They felt the excitement 
I wonder how much they really connected what Jesus had been telling them with what was now a reality. Are we really living as if Jesus is living in our lives? Whether that really changes everything for us. And then suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Well, in, in Matthew's Gospel, the account of that day when Jesus rose had one or two little details that aren't in other Gospels. You have to read all four of them to try to get a full picture. There's a violent earthquake. It's only Matthew that mentions it. Probably one of the most scary things to experience. I don't know if anyone here has, but it must be extremely scary when something that you've always known as solid and dependable starts moving and shaking and you can do nothing about it. And then in the midst of that earthquake, an angel appears, and the appearance of the angel is like lightning. The angel rolls away the stone, and we're told that the hardened and elite guards collapse. The guards collapse, but not the two Marys. It says they were afraid, but they hung on, and their fear turned to joy as they hurried to tell the disciples what they'd seen and what they'd heard. And as they turn to run, they bump into Jesus, who simply says, greetings, or hello. And that's enough for them to recognise him. They clasp his feet to worship. He tells them to go and tell the disciples that he's on his way. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, how they were feeling. The excitement, the joy, could it really be true? Let's think about it another way. Now, imagine for a moment what it would be like to have someone you love very much to go on a trip, say to the Rockies, somewhere far away, that perhaps we don't know very well, for a week or two, to have a break and explore the beauty of that area. They're booked on Flight 103 to come back to Heathrow at 10 o'clock Friday. You get a call on your mobile about 8 o'clock. But before you can find your phone, we always get that, don't you? The person hangs up. You can see it was from your loved one and then you realise they've tried to call you four times earlier that day already. They couldn't leave a message because your voicemail's full. You'd miss the other calls because it was on silent. You try and call back. There's no answer. It's annoying, sure. But you're going to see them in the morning anyway. They're probably just phoning you to make sure you pick them up. Before you go to bed, you watch the news and suddenly it's announced that Flight 103, your loved one's flight, had tragically exploded. No survivors. All your hopes, plans, dreams are gone. You're hoping against hope that somehow your loved one wasn't on that plane. You frankly tried to call them, but it goes straight to voicemail. After 24 hours, you start to accept the worst must have happened, hard as it is. Family members come to see you. You even start to think about a funeral. In just a few hours, your whole world's been turned upside down. Life's not going to be the same again. 
it seems more than you can bear. Step into the garden to get some fresh air and then your mobile rings. At first, you don't want to answer it because you don't feel like talking to anyone. But as you glance at the screen, the number's familiar. Hello, is that you? And the familiar voice calmly says, yeah, it's me. You recognise the voice and you run into the house shouting, she's alive, she's alive. Ha, family think you're mad. You've cracked under the strain. But then they hear a voice and apparently she never got on the plane. She'd been trying to call the day before to say that she's extended a bit longer and she was going into an area where there'd be no signal so she wouldn't be in touch. Simple as that. When she came back and heard about the plane, she called you straight away. So although the family had gathered to mourn and comfort, that phone call changed everything. And now they had a reason to celebrate. Tears of sadness became tears of joy. Someone they thought was dead was actually alive and would soon be on their way home. Everything had changed. Now there's a big difference between those two stories, the story of Easter and the story of the plane and the experience of the disciples. They didn't see a plane explode and assume their loved one was on it. They actually saw Jesus put to death on the cross. They saw him breathe heavily until that final breath came out and it was his last. They saw a spear into his side releasing a flow of blood and water. They seen his lifeless body put into a tomb. They didn't have to second guess anything. There was no doubt Jesus had been crucified. He had been placed in the tomb. They expected everything to change their lives now that Jesus was dead. All that talk about new life seemed empty. That stuff about making them fishers of men was no longer relevant. The invitation to come and follow him had run into a dead end. What were they supposed to do now? There was even talk about the authorities might be looking for them for having stolen his body. Although they'd been with Jesus for three years, they hadn't grasped the truth that Jesus was actually going to physically rise from the dead. We know the Easter stories are said so well. And we know that Jesus' resurrection changes everything. He could have come at Christmas as a baby, grown up as a good Jewish boy, had his bar mitzvah, and then at the age of 30 become a great teacher. Many Jewish people and leaders recognised him as a great teacher, albeit a bit wayward at times, a bit off track from their view. His teaching could simply have challenged the establishment, causing them to do away with him. And his life could have finished in the tomb. Without the resurrection, then this is all Jesus' life would have been. But his resurrection is the proof of God's acceptance that sin has been dealt with been paid for. The divine exchange has happened. Sin died on the cross. God accepted that offering and showed his acceptance through the resurrection of Jesus and so he counts us right before him because of Jesus. When the women went to the tomb they expected to find a dead body 
that they could pour some perfume on out of respect. Jesus had been buried so quickly after his death that they didn't get to go through the usual procedures of anointing his body. They were amazed when they got there and found it was empty. Of course, the stone was rolled away so that they could see in, not so that Jesus could get out. And they're asked in Luke 24, says, why do you look for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He has risen. This gave them something to celebrate. Something to share. Good news that they couldn't keep to themselves. And they ran off to tell the disciples. It's so easy for us to read scripture, isn't it, without thinking about what we're reading. Now, I have a, a, a confession to make. I usually read first thing in the morning. And that often means about six o'clock. I mean, that's okay, reading six o'clock is fine, so far so good. But sometimes I'm a little bit tired and I lose a bit of concentration. Especially if I'm reading something like Romans or Hebrews. Not always the easiest passages. Sometimes I have to read a few times to try and focus and appreciate and understand what I'm reading. But we can be in danger this morning of doing the same, even though it's mid-morning. Because it's a familiar story. It's easy for us to read, isn't it? The women were filled with joy and they ran off to the disciples. But we could read it. The women were filled with joy and they ran off to the disciples. Just that different sort of emphasis on it and understanding. They were boiling over with excitement, with the good news. Many years ago now, I had a business trip to Las Vegas. Now, I know my, my kids didn't believe it either, but it was. It was a business trip to Las Vegas. Actually, we stayed in Las Vegas. Hotels are cheap in Las Vegas. That's why we stayed there. Uh, but they are cheap because they wanted to spend all your money on the table. So they, you know, but we stayed in Las Vegas, but we were visiting somewhere nearby where they, they did paint testing. I used to work for Ford, for those that don't know. And they tested paint in hot environments to make sure it didn't peel or fade. We didn't actually have to watch it dry. <laughs> we didn't have to do that bit. <laughs> but we, we were going there to see how it was getting on. Anyway, I extended the trip and I took a few days holiday to visit the Grand Canyon. And I took a flight over the canyon. It was incredible. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Completely amazed. I mean, it blew me away breathtaking but I actually felt strangely flat and I had to think about why although the experience was fantastic it was relatively short lived because I'd lived it on my own and I couldn't share it with anyone anyone who would understand so the women went off to tell the disciples they went to share the good news and they met with scepticism had they gone crazy? They were sharing an experience that the disciples should have understood, but they didn't. The women are full of joy, but they struggle to get others to believe. How many times have the disciples been told by Jesus? But for them, seeing was believing. And we still use that expression often today, don't we? 
I'll believe it when I see it. But of course we can't run to the tomb in the same way. And that's why Jesus said to to Thomas in John 20, he said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I knew a preacher who often used to use the expression believing is seeing. With the things of God, the first step is to believe and then our eyes will be open to see. But the women were strong enough, weren't they, to push their point. They knew what they'd seen and heard. Peter realised they weren't going to change their story, so he runs off to the tomb to see for himself. He's quickly followed by John. John seems to be in better shape than Peter because he overtakes him and gets there first. Of course, the tomb's empty. That afternoon, Jesus walks with two disciples on the road to Emmaus and he eats and he breaks bread with them. And these disciples quickly go back to Jerusalem to see the eleven. Everybody should be celebrating. But it's starting to become a bit of who do you believe? Whose side of the argument are you on? But that evening, the doubts are swept away because Jesus joins them in a locked upper room where they gathered because of fear of the Jews. Jesus is alive. The scars are in his hands and in his side. Now they understand and had a reason to celebrate and they too were all filled with joy. Jesus is risen. The story wasn't, the resurrection wasn't just a story. It's as real as anything else around us. We celebrate an actual event in history. And it wasn't just the immediate disciples who Jesus appeared to. There was a group of 500 he appeared to all at once. We can only imagine what that first day was like when they started to realise that what Jesus had said before his resurrection was being fulfilled just as he said. Now because Jesus rose from the dead, because the disciples believed, because they were commissioned by Jesus at the end of the Gospels to go and make disciples of all nations, so the early church was born. Prophecies were coming true. When Jesus called the first disciples, he said he would make them fishers of men. He did. When God spoke to Abraham way back in the Old Testament, he told them that he would be the father of a great nation, but also that he would be a blessing to all nations. And so in Acts, we have the record of how the church grew, how Jesus' resurrection changed everything. As men and women responded to the gospel, they celebrated. And we're told that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Heaven rejoices. And we really need to capture that sense of joy, or perhaps recapture it. It can be lonely though, can't it, sometimes being a Christian. Sometimes difficult. We're very fortunate that we don't face the persecution some do but we can still get down. We can still struggle. A day like today helps us to celebrate, to rekindle that joy. But what about during the week? Perhaps when we're on our own. There's lots of things for us to to distract us. And some will try to kill our sense of joy. Most of you will know Roger Grimes, our pastoral assistant. 
And recently he told a story of when he was offered some tickets to see a football match. Now, Roger's a Norwich City supporter. No, no judgments, please. <laughs> I'm not a footballer. <laughs> I know nothing about football. But I do know that Norwich City isn't that high up. But he was offered some tickets and the game was Norwich City against West Ham. So quite a big game. But there was a catch. He was offered the tickets by his friend who was a West Ham supporter. And so obviously the seats were in the West Ham end of the stadium. Now because it was a big match he really wanted to go and this was the only way that he could get there. Of course, when he went he had to keep any signs, any signs of supporting Norwich well out of sight. His mannerisms and his gestures had to be appropriate. He politely, but he says with a lump in his throat, sang along to I'm forever blowing bubbles. <laughs> and when Norwich scored he didn't show any sign of celebration, although inside he was bursting. On that day he couldn't be confident in celebration. He was alone in a crowd who would turn on him if he didn't do what was expected. I think he said that Norwich lost the match and so he had to endure the celebration of all those around him as well. But imagine him in that stadium as a lone figure on the opposite side as he watched those he really wanted to sit with celebrating with confidence when their and his team scored. Inside he was celebrating but outwardly he had to remain subdued. Football creates some powerful emotions and hopefully, uh, Martin, you can uh, show this clip. We don't often celebrate quite like that, do we, in church? But in a sense, it's how our hearts should be. That's really how our hearts should be. There's power in celebration, you can see it there. There's confidence in celebrating together. And uh, our celebrations can and should be just as real today as when the disciples celebrated and when the early church celebrated. It says in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The truth doesn't change. So how does that look for tomorrow and the rest of the week? Now we might not jump up on tables and go wild or fling off our shirts and dance around, at least not physically, but perhaps at least a measure of that spiritually. When we leave here, having celebrated the resurrection together, let's not forget how rich we are in Christ. Let's remember that the day you gave your life to Jesus, there was celebrating in heaven. And that celebration never ceases. Each of us is special to God. And whether we're in a crowd that encourages us to celebrate and lift us up, as we do, or whether we're in a hostile crowd, as Roger was, 
we can still have that sense of overwhelming joy and celebration in our hearts. We can be encouraged as we see and join others in celebration and that can give us that confidence to keep hold of that sense of celebration when we go into more difficult situations. It's a bit like having a foundation to build from that gives us a confidence to continue. At the beginning of Hebrews 12 it says, and I'm just summarising from here, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now I don't have to tell you that chapter 12 follows chapter 11 in Hebrews, and of course chapter 11 is that great chapter celebrating the great men and women of faith. And actually, verse 1 of, of Hebrews 12, the very, I've got the three dots there, actually starts, therefore. So having read chapter 11, therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, there are a great cloud of witnesses, all those that are mentioned in chapter 11. They're cheering us on that we will persevere and complete the race. And as we celebrate together in here, they celebrate with us. And as we go about things in the week, they continue to cheer us on to complete our race. When we leave here, we're not alone. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. You know where you're going to spend eternity and we have a reason to celebrate, not just today, but every day. The Apostle Paul wrote, Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus makes the difference. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's available to us, the same power that can change us into the person or people that God wants us to be. Jesus' resurrection means that we know where we're going, but it also means that we have the power to live the way that God wants us to now. Anybody can live for themselves, but we've made a decision to live for God. And with his power, his encouragement, the encouragement of those who've gone before us and those who are around us today, we live our lives in victory and celebration. So as we celebrate Jesus' resurrection together today, we sort of look back, but we can also look forward with confidence that today's celebration strengthens us to be the people that God wants us to be every day of the week and every day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we celebrate together. You've called us and empowered us. You walk with us and guide us. Every day and every moment we are in your care. May we be encouraged to live our lives in the power of your resurrection the same power that's available to us through all of life's challenge. Lord, may we leave this place with our spirits renewed and with celebration in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.